before we open God's word and see what God has to say to us, I would like to ask you a question. And I want you to mull over this. Why are you here? What caused you to leave the comfort of your bed to decide to come to church this morning? It might have been, it's routine, it's what we do on a Sunday, it might be some of my friends are there, it might be they, they do good coffee. Have we come this morning, and I don't just mean give me the answer I want to hear, and you don't even have to give me an answer at all. Have you come this morning because you believe that the God of the universe might want to meet with you? We're going to read from a passage in Ephesians. I try to shorten it and do a shorter passage, but um, unfortunately I couldn't. So it's quite a long passage. It might just be one of the most glorious passages that we have in the New Testament. And so as I read this out, if you want to just sit quietly and hear it, that's fine. If you need to shout out hallelujah, that's fine. If you need to do something to just engage with what is being said, that's fine. Let's hear what God has to say to us in Ephesians 1. As I say, it's a long passage I'm going to read. Ephesians 1 verse 3 all the way into 2 verse 11. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of him, of his great might? That he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead 
and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. <coughs> God, we come to behold you this morning. And yet our eyes are dim, our hearts are cold. We don't love you as we should. We don't seek you as we should. But Lord, you love to reveal yourself. Show us your glory this morning, we pray. Amen. This passage does something so profound in, in only so many words. It's, it's really quite short if you think about it. Longer than we normally do on a Sunday morning, but in terms of an explanation of truth in the world and how everything works is fairly short, but it gives a very well-rounded, nuanced understanding of both who God is and who we are as people. And it refuses to kind of make it simple and boil down to just kind of one thing, which we love to do, and this teaches us not to do that. So what does this have to say about us what do we learn about what it means to be human in this passage? Well, it's very humbling, it's very humiliating, but what we're told is, you know how good you are? You know how you like to do the right thing? You're dead in your trespasses. You're not sick. You don't have something in you that's just a bit wrong, but you're mostly good. You are dead. Another way the Bible talks about this is, your heart is a rock, it's a stone. You know, if you have two plant pots, if I put them in front of you, and I said one of these has a seed in, and one of these has a rock in, how do you know which one's which? You can't. They look the same. In a few months, you'll know which one's which. One of them brings forth life, and one of them does nothing, because it is dead and lifeless. And the Bible says that's the human heart, dead opposed to God, nothing 
in it that loves God, nothing that wants God, nothing that goes after the things that God has on offer. And it says that we walk in these ways. We were dead in sins and we walked following the course of this world, the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. People say, yeah, but, but we have free will. Free will means that you have the freedom to do the things that you want to do. And what do I want to do? Anything but serve God. Anything but go after God. Anything but delight in the things of God. What do I want to do? Well, that's easy. I want to do what I want to do. Anything that pleases me. Anything that delights me. Anything that will bring me to the things that I want more. Walking in the passions of the flesh. Paul uses the phrase, children of wrath. Nothing good. It's a radical picture of the human condition. And what that essentially means is that when we're dealing with people, with ourselves, with anyone who doesn't know God, the picture is not like going into a hospital and just administering the right medicines. Hey, can I tell you about the gospel? Yes, please, I'll have some of that. I'm better. The picture is, as Jesus comes to a sinner and brings them to himself, he is walking to a corpse and he is saying, Lazarus, come out. And the corpse can't but be risen. Deadness. Children of wrath. Walking in the passions of our flesh. That's just the human condition. Turn on the news. What do you see? People walking in the passions of their flesh. Doing what they want to do. Doing what will serve them. And sometimes, walking in the passions of your flesh can look like you're being nice to other people. It can look like you're doing it because you love other people. But it's amazing how people aren't so willing to help others if other people don't know about it. If they are not somehow benefiting from it. If there is not something in it for them. So even the best things that we do are ultimately following the passions of the flesh. Let's move over to God for a minute. What is God's verdict on this? Children of wrath means that God's anger burns terribly against sin and against humanity. Children of wrath means that God is a just God and wants to see justice done, which comes at the destruction of all that is opposed to him. It means that God is an angry God. But then something very strange happens when you read this. Because as you read it, it, it first begins by, blessed be God, the most glorious one, the one whom we have offended, the one who is there. Blessed is he. 
He has blessed us. He has chosen us in him. In love, he predestined us. To the praise of his glorious grace, in him we have been brought to him. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. And you say, what on earth is going on here? I can understand God is an angry God. I can understand God is a God of love. What we don't often understand is, how can God be the God who hates sin? Who is wrathful, who burns in anger, and the God who we say, his great mercy, his love to us. All these kind of things. And, and Paul says it in the first few verses, the forgiveness of our sins. We come to the cross, and the cross looks like a crossroads for a reason. This is the greatest intersection that human history has ever seen. The place where the wrath, the fierce wrath of God meets the overwhelming radical love of God. Just as the Red Sea parted and God showed his loving grace and salvation to the people of Israel and those very same waters came in and killed the Egyptians, so too does God's wrath most clearly come out when we look at the cross and we say, that is what I deserve. That man bleeding, dying, suffering in agony, that is what I deserve. The cross reveals just how terrible the human condition is and how righteous God's anger is. And at the same time, just as those waters pass and the Israelites pass through, the cross shows us this God who is going to the furthest degree to show his radical, all-consuming love to people who should be on that cross. There is a reason why Peter tells us in 1 Peter, angels long to understand these things. Think about that conversation. Ephesians 1 tells us this is before the foundations of the world. You think of that conversation as the Father and, and the angels look down the corridor of time and God says, this is a sorry state. Deary me. I must show my justice. I'm going to adopt them. And the angels say, adopt them. But they don't love you as you should be loved. They don't behold your glory as it should be beheld. They don't see your splendor. No, they don't. So I'm going to adopt them. And I'm going to transform them. And the angels say, God where is your justice? They're sinners. They're criminals. Doesn't your anger burn against them? And God says, yeah, I'm furious. Then why are you doing it? How can you show love to these people? How can you bring them in? How can you make them your own? How can you make them your prized possession? And Jesus steps forward and he says, I'll pay the price. I'll die for them. I'll bear the pain. And the angels just, Why are you doing this, Lord? Because I 
love them. They're terrible. <laughs> But I love them, and I'm going to make them my own, and I'm going to change them from the inside out. I'm going to give them eyes to see. I love them. And the angel say, why? And he says, I can't put it into words. There aren't the words. If you want to know why, just look at the cross. So Jesus goes, and he becomes one of us, and he dies in our place. And you're just still left wondering why, what on earth is going on that God goes to these lengths, that God sees everything, that God sees those thoughts in your heart that no one else will see, that you hope no one else will see. And he is the one who has gone the furthest degree to show you love. He's gone the furthest degree to make sure you come to see things properly. Why? Why? What does this achieve? Go through the passage. Glory. 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 God loves his glory. And there is nothing more glorious than seeing God take a sinner who was opposed to him and then their eyes open and they say, my goodness, Look at you. And you say, isn't that a bit self-centered that God would love his own glory? That God loves his own glory more than he loves me? If, if, if there was someone and I said, this person loves money more than their own family, what would you say? They've got their priorities wrong. If they were a better person, they would love their family more than they love money. If someone says, I love my family more than I love God, we would say, you've got your priorities wrong. God is the greater good than your family. So if God is perfect, if God's desires and his wills and his affections are most tuned in with what is perfect, then what does God love more than God? And that's not a bad thing. That's actually a very, very good thing. You see, I love God more than I love Anna. Does that make me a better husband or a worse husband? Because now, as much as I might love her, those times where I'm not really feeling it, and I open up Ephesians 5 and it tells me to love my wife as Christ loved the church. Okay, right. And it's a very good thing for Anna that I love God more than her. And so it's a very good thing that God loves his glory more than he loves us because it's brought us redemption. It's brought us home to him. Glory. Glory is not something we talk about very often. I've been struck by this this week, thinking about the glory of God. It's funny how we, uh, we use that word because we kind of use it as a, a synonym for like um, splendor. Or beauty sometimes, which I think is fine. Sometimes fame, oh, they had more glory than anyone else. Sometimes we use it in funny ways. We say it's a glorious day. I mean, it's hot and it's bright. It's funny, actually. The word in Hebrew for glory is their word for, for heaviness. 
for weight. So if someone was very glorious, it meant they were very heavy, or sometimes you have to work out which one was being said. So the picture there is there is this kind of weightiness, this heaviness to glory. And I think that's really a, a good way of thinking about why we don't talk about glory very often. You know when you're having a conversation with someone and you go, oh, this is getting a bit deep. This is getting a bit heavy. Or you walk over to someone and you think they're going to have some small talk and they're talking to someone else. Oh, I might go join in the conversation. And you go, okay, now that's a bit of a heavy conversation. I'm not going to join in on that one. Because we find heaviness, we find that profundity, we find depth quite draining, right? It's, it takes a lot of energy to actually comprehend what is being said. It's much easier to stay light. It's easier to stay on the surface. It's easier to think about small things. Sometimes when we do go deep, when we do think of the heavy stuff, it's a blessing to us, but my goodness, we have to exert a lot of energy, emotional energy, physical energy to actually do it. If you went to, say, the top of Mount Everest every day, you would take in a glorious sight. My goodness, it would take a lot out of you. And so eventually the, the human body kind of does this thing where it, it regulates, and the things that you used to find glorious, you don't find that glorious anymore. Or you put off and you like to stay light. And I think that whole, you know, look outside the glorious day thing is quite a good way of uh, understanding this, because... We go outside and we say, oh my, the sun is, is warm. This is nice. We think, oh, the sun, lovely and glorious the sun is. The sun is lovely and glorious because it's 98 million miles away. We don't have to get very close. We can stay light. And I think we understand in our mind the sun is big. And the sun is very hot. And the sun is quite scary. But I don't think we quite let ourselves comprehend when we're enjoying a sunny day, when Paige is getting her tan, how big, how hot, what kind of thing we're dealing with. So we're going to do an, an astronomy lesson. Okay. This is a ball. But for our purposes, this is the sun. Okay? So there we go. Now, I have this. Anyone see that? That is a 2.2 millimeter ball of blue tack. Okay, this is the Earth. You can fit 1.3 million Earths in the sun. How far away do you think they should be? If I put this here, where do I, where do I stop? Wrong. Right, Mark, can you take the ball, and can you go walk as far as you can to the radiator? Phil, can you take the earth? He's got the whole world in his hands, Phil Jenkins. <laughs> Don't, yeah, we've got enough issues with the world at the moment. Take that as far as you can. Right, this, as far as they're going, is still not right. They're about 16 and a half meters away from each other at the moment. Mark would need to be on the other side of that hedge which you don't actually have to do, and Phil would have to be past a car. And that's how far the Earth is from the sun. If Phil, can you just take one step? If Phil was that much closer, assuming he's actually outside, all life is gone. We're dead. 
If you're in a spaceship that has been heavily, heavily packed out with protective stuff, then Phil can get about, come a bit closer. Come a bit closer. A bit closer. And you are dead. And you went blind a few steps ago, by the way. That is the kind of magnitude we are dealing with. From that, that little ball will destroy this little ball and any tiny balls that come off it. Now, thank you, Phil. Got the earth back. Mark, you can put this on wherever you like. This tiny dot is not actually as big as the earth is, just so we all know. The earth is much bigger than this. You are a tiny, tiny dot on this tiny dot. Right. To many suns in the universe, this is our sun. And this room are the other suns. That is terrifying to think that that ball of light out there that gives us a tan, that gives us good days, has the power to not only harm, but to absolutely obliterate. The sun is so big that every day it loses the mass of Texas. And you don't notice the difference. The glory of God is not like the sun. The glory of God is not like the suns, which are the equivalent of the size of this room. The glory of God cannot be comprehended by finite measurements. This passage tells us the infinite riches of his grace, immeasurable. You cannot put it on a measurement. I remember my... When I was a kid, being at church, and we'd stand when we sung, and I must have been about seven or six, and I remember sitting down, and I'm not saying this was the best, um, I'm not saying this was the best kind of way of explaining it in the world, but I remember my mum saying, you have to stand up when we sing. Why? Because Jesus died for us, this is the least we can do. And I remember as a kid starting to kind of quantize how much standing and singing would I have to do before I kind of paid him back. And I remember thinking when I was about 12, I think I've done it now. This is immeasurable. And yet we find it so easy to just deal with the shallow, to just deal with the light, to say, God is good. God is glorious. Glory of God. I want to experience the glory of God. That's good. We should be doing that. And I am not, I've got it right and I'm telling you guys, I, I speak this as someone who needs to hear this. The glory of God has to captivate us. Because it's bigger than anything we experience. It's bigger than anything we know. The glory of God is not just I went to church and the worship was really good this morning. The glory of God is not I get to go to heaven when I die. The glory of God is not... I'm getting a hard time from my friends about this, but I like Jesus more than them. We can experience the glory of God in all these things, in marriage, in work, in singleness, in, in health, in sickness, in coming and worshipping with the people of God. But we are scratching the surface and fooling ourselves that we've got all the way. 
We're standing in the sun on a sunny day and saying, I'm pretty close now. By all means, bask in it. Get the equivalent of a spiritual tan. But let's not pretend that we've completed it. I was thinking as I was going to preach from this passage, they've probably all heard this before. And we need to hear it again and 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 again immeasurably. God has given us all eternity to just spend time dwelling on a glory that we cannot conceive or comprehend. That's why Paul prays, may the eyes of your heart be enlightened as they see dimly. Because we managed to turn the most exciting and invigorating and life-giving thing in this world into, I've heard this before. There is a problem with our heart. There is a deadness to our heart. And only the glory of God can remove that deadness. Paul tells us, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit loves a lot of things. John 14 and 15 tell us there is one thing that the Holy Spirit loves more than anything else. Jesus. He loves Jesus. If you are a Christian, then the Holy Spirit is in you. Listen to his voice. Because as I say the name Jesus, the Holy Spirit in you is saying, oh, I love him. Talk more about him. I want to hear more about him. And so I have no application. I don't, I tried thinking of something I could say, go and do this this week. There is no application. The application is this. Jesus is glorious. And the Holy Spirit in you wants to delight in him. Are you listening to the voice of the Spirit? Do you hear Jesus' vo- name and say, I love that again, please. More of that, please. As I say, I'm preaching this to me because so often we turn this into a routine. There's a reason why it says about six times in the Old Testament, I don't just want your sacrifices, I want your heart. Because it's easy to just do the stuff. I need to read my Bible today, I need to pray, I need to go to church on Sunday, I need to go to home group in the week. Because we like to keep it light. It's difficult, but it's, and it's costly, but it's worth it to expend the energy to take on the toll of just beginning to dwell on the glory of God. To let that stir in you from the inside out. To let the Holy Spirit do his work. Because when the angels and the Father were having that conversation, when the Father was trying to explain, yes, I'm angry, but I love them more than you can know. And Jesus was saying, I'll die for them. And the angels were saying, what are you doing? The Holy Spirit was just there saying, just keep talking, Jesus. This is great. Just, just keep talking. And I can't wait to play my part. I can't wait to enter the hearts of my people and tell them how good you are. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us together with Christ. 
by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated him with the heavenly places with Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing it is the gift of God let's pray Lord, whenever we come to you with our why questions, why do you love me? Why have you saved me? Why do you hear me? Just shut us up. Just tell us to be quiet. God, we can't begin to express or to measure or to quantify your grace, your riches, your glory because they are immeasurable and words fail us and preaching fails and praying fails and worshipping fails and talking about your glory fails and said, Lord, we just come to the cross. And we just say, Lord, I don't understand it. I cannot comprehend it. But here at the foot of your cross, I am loved. I am adopted. I am brought home. I am yours. And we, your people this morning, God, we come before you and we just say, Hallelujah. Amen.